Proverbs chapter 5, on page 629. And any children here, kindergarten to second grade, who'd like to go to Children's Church, are welcome to do so. Proverbs chapter 5. It's on page 629 if you're using a pew Bible. We started looking at Proverbs 5 last Sunday, but didn't get all the way through it, so this is sort of the second half of that study. Proverbs chapter 5, page 629. You may have heard of um, George Mueller. He was a famous Christian in the 19th century in England uh, who started an orphanage, and it grew and it grew, and uh, what was interesting about his orphanage was uh, it was a faith orphanage. And by that I mean that he didn't go out and raise funds for the orphanage. In fact, he didn't even tell anybody that there were financial needs for the orphanage. He decided that he wanted to prove that God was real and that God would provide. And so what he would do when there was a need in the orphanage is he would pray and he would ask God to provide for the need. And then he would just wait upon God to fund the orphanage. And for decades, God funded the orphanage that way. It's an amazing story of faith. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because when you read his writings, he says his primary motive for starting the orphanage wasn't even to care for kids. It was to prove to people that God was real and that God could provide. And the orphanage, in a sense, was a means to that end. He was a great man of faith, but, you know, as the old saying goes, <clears throat> behind every great man is a great woman. And it's really true. And uh, in George's case, there were two great women. One was his first wife named Mary. He married her when he was 25 years old. They were married for 39 years. And when George Mueller was 64, his wife passed away. And he preached her funeral sermon, amazingly enough. Uh, two years later, he met his second wife, uh, Savannah Sanger, and they got married when he was 66. They were married for 23 years. And when George Mueller was 90 years old, Savannah died, and he preached her funeral sermon. And at that point in his life, he had, he had had four children. Two had uh, been stillborn. One died at a year old, and then his oldest daughter had died too. So he had no wives. All his family was gone. He just had his Savior, his church, and the orphanage. Uh, but anyway, he preached this um, sermon when he was 90. And he was talking about how much he loved his wife. And I just want to read this to you. It's just a beautiful passage about his delight in his wife. It's a little Victorianish, but it's kind of cool. All right, here we go. He asked the question in his sermon, Were we happy? Verily we were. With every year our happiness increased more and more. I never saw my beloved wife at any time when I met her unexpectedly anywhere in town without being delighted so to do. I never met her in the orphan houses without my heart being delighted so to do. Day by day as we met in our dressing room at the orphan houses, to wash our hands before dinner and tea. I was delighted to meet her, and she was equally pleased to see me. Thousands of times I told her, my darling, I never saw you at any time since you became my wife without my being delighted to see you. What a beautiful picture of a husband and wife in their later years, just always happy just to see each other wherever they would bump into one another, to be delighted to see each other. Well, today, as I said, this is the second half of the sermons in Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at verses 1 to 14, which if you were here, 
It was pretty intense. It was a stern warning against adultery and infidelity. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 14 last Sunday, we looked at the lure of adultery and the way that betrayal always brings about a devastating uh, ruin to a marriage and, and to families and to relationships that sometimes people don't recover from. Well, this morning I want to look at verses 15 to 20. In a sense, I want to look at the other side of the adultery coin. I want to look, instead of at the negative of what not to do, I want to look at the positive of what we're supposed to do. I want to look at the joyous picture of the married relationship that we have in Proverbs. Yes, we know we're not uh, to betray our spouses, but let's look now at the happy, as George Mueller said, delightful experience of being with one's spouse as God intended it to be. So let's look at uh, verse 15. It says there, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Now what's going on here? I mean, I thought we were talking about husbands and wives and all of a sudden we're talking about irrigation, uh, water management. I mean, what... What is this? Well, it's a metaphor. I'm, I'm sure you probably figured that out. And the metaphor is uh, unveiled in verse 18. It says, May your fountain be blessed. There's more water image. Here we go. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. So the water is a symbol of the intimacy between husband and wife, including physical intimacy, but just, I think even more than that, just the love and the tender care that a husband and wife are supposed to have for one another. So go back to verse 15. When he says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, uh, the cistern and the well represent the wife's uh, intimacy with her husband. And on the flip side of verse 16, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares. That's talking about the husband's intimacy and love, in a sense, his body being given away to strangers in the streets. And so, in either case, we see that, that the intimacy between husband and wife is described as water. And really, that's kind of a fitting image. Uh, because in this context, I think that metaphor of water carries two connotations here in this passage. Uh, the first is, water signifies something that is sacred, life-giving, and therefore must be protected and guarded. Right? It's something that has to be shielded and protected. Now, that may not be intuitive to us because, you know, we don't have the problem with water. It's like, you want water? What do you do? Go to the kitchen. We got hot. We got cold. It's potable. It's clean. It's drinkable. I mean, what's, what's the big deal? We can go home and turn on the shower, hot and cold, and just stand there for 20 minutes, you know, with water running down on us. This is a rare luxury that most human beings have not had down through the centuries and many people don't even have today in different parts of the world. And so we think of water as just something, it's everywhere, you have public drinking fountains and water's everywhere, but not back then. In an arid culture, in an ag agrarian culture, your water source was the life of your family, your flock, your agriculture and everything. So if you dug a well out in the desert and you hit water, that was like gold. And you protected that from outsiders at any cost. If you went the hard work to hew a cistern out of the rock, and that cistern collected water, you protected that. So the water imagery talks of, is really about, on the one hand, protecting the intimacy, and especially the physical intimacy, of a husband and wife within marriage. It's something to be guarded 
and treasured and, and protected from outsiders. It's not for everybody. The other side of the water imagery here in this verse is that water is also refreshing. So it's not just that it's something to be protected and guarded, it's also something that is to be delighted in between a husband and wife. It should be treasured and rejoiced in. It's like um, you know, a cup of cold water after you've been out in the yard working and digging and whatever, underneath the car fixing things, and, and you come inside and there's this glass of cold water, you know, and you can see the beads of sweat coming down the outside of the glass. Oh, it tastes so good. That's the idea that husbands and wives are to mutually refresh one another. They're supposed to delight in and enjoy each other. That's why it says in verse 18, May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. You could translate that, May you delight in the wife of your youth. I don't know where we got this idea, people, that the Bible has a negative view of sexuality. Somehow there's this idea out there that the Bible has a prudish, puritanical, oppressive, hung-up kind of view of sexuality. And fortunately, we live in the modern age, which is liberated, you know, and, and, and we're free and we're not shackled by all these heavy, negative, grumpy pictures of sexuality we find in the Bible. It's just not true. You know? Look at verse 19. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts always satisfy you. That's not puritanical. What's puritanical in that? It's pretty erotic, actually. I mean, look at that. This is the Bible's view of, of sexuality. You know, the, the, it's just the opposite. The Bible has a very high, exalted, sacred, lofty view of sexuality. It is our society that has turned it into a degraded, fouled, tainted, warped view of sexuality. It's just the opposite. What the Bible has is beautiful. It's what our culture has done that's, that's vile and disgusting and has ruined it, you know? It's not, you know, think about this. Um, the reason we have an illegitimacy rate in our country of 28% now, higher among some groups, it's not because people are following the Bible's teaching. It's not because people are cleaving closely to the Scripture teaching on sex that we have STDs and HIV. It's not because people are really taking the Bible seriously that we have you know, rape and sexual abuse and molestation and perversion. It's not because people are really reading what the Scriptures have to say that people go to club after club, hookup after hookup, person after person, and all they feel, rather than feeling more connected, they feel more disconnected. They feel more vile. They feel more dirty and tainted. They feel more lonely. Isn't that so ironic that you're more lonely the more people you're with? And we go, what is going on here? It's because we have lost the vision of what sexuality is meant to be. You know, our world doesn't know what sex is. I mean, yeah, they think they know because they understand the physical biology of it. But that's not what it is. Let me tell you what sex is. It is the physical enactment of the husband and wife's unity as one flesh. It's like, um, you know, it's like a, a sacrament of marriage, if you want to call it that. It's the covenant sign of the marriage covenant. Uh, maybe this might even be, this might be a little extreme, but I kind of think about it this way. I think of sex as kind of like baptism and communion. That just as we 
we enjoy baptism and communion, which are the physical signs or expressions of the spiritual unity we have with Jesus as our husband and the church as his bride. And, and we love Christ and he loves us. We are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is symbolized through communion and baptism. So in the same way, sexuality expresses and embodies the unity between a husband and wife. So it's a very sacred thing. It's a very precious and wonderful thing that's to be protected and delighted in. Now, this is why sex outside of marriage is such an abomination. It's not that Christians are all hung up and prudish and are getting into everyone else's business. It's just that you're taking something beautiful and ruining it. You know, Sex outside of the boundaries of joyous marriage is like taking communion to a frat party. It's like, take this table right here go to a kegger. Hey, you guys hungry? We got some bread? Yeah. You thirsty? Check out this wine. Woo! Yeah! It's like, no! This is communion. We protect this table. We don't just say, yeah, everyone come on down and have some. You know, we say, this is for believers. We protect and guard this. And so in a very similar way, um, this is how God has designed uh, the physical relationship between men and women. And so, it's to be delighted. It's like refreshing water. That's the idea behind it. Uh, in a sense, you know, last week we were talking about adultery. How uh, husbands are to flee from adultery, to flee from betrayal. Isn't it interesting, kind of ironically, that one of the keys to learning to be faithful to your wife is your wife. That God has given you your wife husband in order to resist those temptations to be unfaithful to your wife. And so, it's all designed by God. It works beautifully. That also means, wives, that part of the way you can help your husband stay faithful to you is to be open with yourself physically to him. You know, I know you're like, I can't believe we're talking about this in church. But hey, it's in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Husbands, your body does not belong to you. It also belongs to your wife. Wives, your body does not belong to you. It also belongs to your husband. And so we're called to to enjoy one another and, and to, to love one another as husbands and wives in this way. This is God's plan and it's a beautiful thing. But I hope you also see here, husbands and wives and everybody, that, that the kind of delighting that is to take place is not simply about sex and physical. That, that it's also emotional and relational intimacy. That just as adultery is not just physical but it has a strong emotional and relational component in most cases. So in the same way, the intimacy between a husband and wife is also an emotional and relational kind of thing. So when it says in verse 18, look back there, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. You know, that rejoicing in your wife means more than just sex. It means to enjoy who they are as a person. It means to delight in them. Like George Mueller, I was delighted to see her. I was so happy every time I saw her. Right? You know, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Well, pastor, she ain't that young anymore. <sighs> Look, blockhead. It doesn't say... It doesn't say rejoice in the wife of her youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, the girl you originally married. That's what it means. You know, like George Mueller. He, he's 66 years old. And he's delighting in, in this woman... In, the, in his golden years of his life. It's, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the mind. It's not about the looks and the physical. It's about what's inside of us. Or look what it says in verse 19. Again, this emotional 
in mental captivation with a spouse. He says, may you ever be captivated by her love. Now, you see that word captivated? An interesting Hebrew word. Uh, the, the word can be translated to go astray, to sort of lose one's balance, to stagger. It's also, interestingly, the word that's used to describe how a drunk walks. Have you ever seen you know, someone who's inebriated, they kind of, you know, kind of walk around stumbling? That's the word. And so it's, I, I don't think captivated is a very good translation. I would probably translate this, may you ever be intoxicated by her love. May, may you just be drunk with love for her. That you just see her like George Miller and you're so happy, so delighted to see your spouse. Now guys, <clears throat> I want every man in the room, maybe you want to take notes on this, Guys, dudes, all right? The Bible is giving us a hint on what our wives want from us. You know, listen, okay? When it's telling us to, to delight in our wives and be captivated by our wives, I think it's telling us what it is that women want. I don't understand wives. I don't understand my wife. I don't understand women. Okay, here's a clue, all right, for us. That our wives want us to be captivated by them. Our wives want us to delight in them. Our wives want us to, to focus on them. Our wives want us to treasure them. Our wives want us to hold them as precious with all of our attention on them. That's what they want. Okay? They want to know that we hold them more precious than our work. They want to know that they're, they're more precious to us then what's on TV? They want to know that they're more precious to us than what our favorite hobby is or sport or leisure activity. And they definitely want to know that they're more precious to us than other women. I mean, they're kind of like, no duh, but there you go. They want to know that. This is why weddings, anniversaries, and birthdays are such a big deal. I know, men, we struggle with this, right? Like, what's the big deal? I mean, come on. But, but for... For most women, those are big deals. And they think about those things. They remember those dates. I know, they actually remember them. It's weird. We don't understand that, but they do. And, and so if those big dates come along and we don't acknowledge them, then they wonder, well, if you really treasured me, how could you forget those dates? I mean, you know how to fix a computer. You know how to do this, that, and the other thing. I know you're smart, but you can't even remember me. I mean, what's going on here? And so those little things are part of how we tell our wives that we treasure them, that they're precious to us. This, I think, also, men, explains why uh, women tend, this is a generalization, tend to like those, those romantic movies. I, mean, I just don't get it, right? The romantic comedies. My sister and I joke about this all the time. Uh, some of you know my sister. She's in the church here. and We're, we're different. If you've seen us, we don't even really look alike. She looks like a Rennie. I like pretty much like a Johnson. So we kind of look different. And we have totally different tastes in movies. I love pretty much any movie except romances and romantic comedies. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like if I go see a romantic comedy with my wife, I'm like negotiating. I'm working out deals. I'm like, I'll go see this if we do that and the other thing. My sister likes pretty much only romance and romantic comedies and isn't really interested in any other kind of movie. And her favorite uh, romantic movie right now that she's really into is uh, Pride and Prejudice. And I had to say this. She told me to say this. Not the BBC version, the one with Kira Knightley. Okay. So, in this movie, right, there's a scene where Mr. Darcy, in this novel that's turned into a movie, Mr. Darcy comes 
and he professes his love to Kara Knightley's character. I forget what she's called. And it's early morning. The sun is just rising. They're out in a field. The dew is on the grass. And he looks her in the eyes and he says, I love, I love, I love you. You know? (laughs) And my sister will rewind, (laughs) play, rewind, play, and it's like, I don't get that, you know? Now, she wanted me to put this caveat. She said I could tell you the story as long as I made it clear that she is not dissatisfied with her husband. But uh, she, just likes, she just likes those movies. Uh, and, and that's it. You know, my, it's, it's like this is what most wives want. They want to have a husband who says, you're it. You know, like when Eve was first introduced to Adam and Adam just was like, wow. That's my translation of the Hebrew. Wow. <laughs> Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is what I, I... I didn't even know what you were. I just knew I needed something. And, and God provided the perfect thing for me. And it's you. You're it. You know? And this, wives want to be treasured like that. They, they want to be your princess. You know, they, they want you to love them with that kind of focused, I don't care about anything else kind of love. Or to put it another way, I believe our wives want, them, want us to love them like we did uh, when we were first dating them. You know? When we really did communicate love the way we're supposed to. You know, remember those days, guys? You know, remember back then? I, I remember that, right? We listened to them when they wanted to talk. We were really interested in what they had to say. We even asked follow-up questions. <laughs> we were interested in what they thought. And then, you remember this? I, I can barely remember this. Remember this, guys? We actually opened up about things going on inside of us. You know? You remember that? We would share our dreams and our fears and what was going on in our heads. And it was like, whoo! You know? They were attracted to that. We spent the effort and uh, time to take them out on interesting dates, to write them little notes, to do all those little kinds of things. And then we got married, and then it kind of just you know, sort of faded away, you know? Like the husband whose uh, wife said, why don't you ever say you love me? You never tell me you love me. And the guy says, hey, look, I told you I loved you when we got married. If everything changes, I'll let you know, you know? <laughs> no, not good. That's not delighting in your wife. They want a husband who will delight in them that way. You know, we talked about sexuality before, and and how wives, one of the ways you can, be a, you can really minister to your husbands is by being open uh, with yourself to him sexually. Men, you know, typically, this is very generically speaking, but you know, men tend to have a, very, have a higher sexual appetite than women. And so you can bless your husband by being open that way. But there's another side of the coin, right, guys? It's that in order to support your wife in that, we need to be the kind of men who are just captivated by our wives, who delight in them. So it's a circle that works if all the parts are working. It's a beautiful thing. I uh, just a book I could recommend to you. I've been reading this book. Uh, I've been married 16 years almost, and this has been so helpful to me. You know, I have, I have a happy marriage, but I'll tell you, this book has really been helpful. It's called Love and Respect. It's called uh, by a guy named Dr. Emerson Egricks, and uh, it's really good. It, the basic thesis is, uh, going from Ephesians chapter 5, that, that uh, women want their husbands to love them more than anything else, and more than anything else, men want their wives to respect them that men's language is respect and women's language is love. And when those two things are happening, it's a beautiful 
kind of thing. And I would just really commend this to you. Uh, even if you've been married 40 years, I mean, just buy this book, read it, you know. That, that'll say something to your wife that you're like, you know what, honey, I'm going to read a book. <laughs> I'm going to read a book for you, okay? This is a really encouraging book. If you would like to read this book and you just can't afford a copy, come to me. I will buy you a copy of this book. It's just that. I find it that helpful for my own marriage. It's really encouraging. I'm going to have the elders read this this year as part of their syllabus of reading. So, um, <clears throat> It's interesting, though, that as intense and demanding and inspiring as Proverbs chapter 5 is in calling us to delight in our wives, isn't it interesting that when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, that it gets ratcheted up even higher? That just when you thought you can't go any more intense than be captivated, be intoxicated with your wife, it gets cranked up to another level in the New Testament. They kick it up a notch, as Emeril likes to say. It gets even more intense than the New Testament. You thought King Solomon and his wisdom was challenging. Wait until we read the teaching of the apostles on the kind of love we're to have for our wives. And so I'd like you to turn from Proverbs chapter 5 to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verse 25. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, page 1159. It says, Husbands, love your Wives. There's the command. Okay. Just like Proverbs 5. Love your wives. Uh-oh, here we go. It's getting kicked up a notch. Just as Christ loved the church. Whew. Okay. This is going to be a stretch. Now we're talking about divine love for us. Wow. But look, how did He love the church? Crank it up another notch. He loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So Christ loved the church by being willing to be sacrificed for His people. To suffer. To, to give up and to yield for His people. Well, that's pretty... This is demanding. But wait, there's more. He loved your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave Himself up for her. And then it goes up one more notch. To make her holy. In other words, when Jesus died for His people and loved His people, it was not because they were lovable that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That when Jesus turned His affections upon us and died for our sins on the cross, it's not because He was looking at us saying, well, you know, they, they have some flaws, but overall they're really good people and it'd be a real waste to let good people like that go. No. We were sinners under the condemnation of God, in danger of hell, disloyal. We, we were men who do not love our wives the way God intended. We're, we're sinful people. And to think, to think, that it was at that point when we were unlovable, when instead of love we deserved judgment, that Christ died for us. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's the kind of love, I'll just be honest, I can't fake or generate myself. This is a kind of love that a person can only have through the power of God in his life or her life. Only Christ can give us this kind of love. Only Jesus' blood 
can wash me clean of all the ways I failed God, which are legion. And only the power of the Holy Spirit can turn me into the kind of person that could love my wife or anyone for that matter the way Christ loved the church. <clears throat> and so husbands, the Gospel is at stake in this. Your love for your wife has been called by God to be a physical demonstration, a, a, a visual demonstration of Christ's love for us in the Gospel. So, if we love our wives, we are in a sense becoming a living sermon illustration of Christ's love for the church. You know, we talk about the need to preach the Gospel and then to back the Gospel up with our actions. You know, we talk about that. And oftentimes when we think about backing up the Gospel with our actions, we think about caring for the poor and caring for those in distress. And that's true. We need to do that. But guess what? It starts with just loving your wife. You know, if I go out there and tell everyone about Jesus and I help the poor and all that, but I don't love my wife, in a sense I've kind of undercut the basic Gospel that I'm trying to preach. That a husband's first responsibility is to love our wives is Christ loved the church, even when they're not lovable, even when they're not responsive, that we testify to the Gospel with that kind of love. And like I said, only Christ in us can do that. I'm going to read you a story. Uh, I'll just close with a story. It's from this book I just recommended to you. But it's a, this book's great. It has all these stories about different couples and uh, different ways they wrestled with problems and looked to God's Word for solutions. But here's this uh, lady who wrote a story to the author send him an email. She says, We are still together today because for the past few months my husband loved me when I was not lovable at all and held on to our marriage and his family when there was absolutely nothing to hold on to. He says, This past October I asked him to please leave the house. I wanted to be alone. I wanted space. And I just felt like I didn't love him anymore. She says, reluctantly, he left for a couple weeks. I knew that my life and the life of the girls would drastically change with the divorce. I thought about the shared visitation and how we'd have to sell our home, which we recently, recently finished remodeling. But I didn't care. I just wanted out. Meanwhile, he prayed. He studied marriage books and tapes. He made a decision to love me no matter what. The girls were really starting to miss him not being around, so we decided he would return home until further notice. Well, he would hold my hand every night and pray for me and for our marriage as I stared up at the ceiling, anxiously waiting for him to finish. He would leave little notes or a little flower on the bathroom mirror or in my car. So many little, little things he would do to show me that he loved me and wasn't going to let this marriage end easily. It just irritated me, she says. I thought, can he understand that I don't love him? That I don't want to be with him anymore? Why is he trying so hard? She says, I didn't feel that high in love feeling for him anymore. My needs weren't being met, so I wanted out. Very selfish and immature. She says, I was emotionally going through something that neither of us really understood, but he stayed there and loved me through it. Then she writes, I'll spare you all the little extra details, but I eventually broke. No woman in her right mind could let go of that much love and commitment. She says, now I am very much in love with my husband. I learned that love is not a feeling. It's a choice and a commitment. We didn't become a statistic because my husband chose to love me no matter what my reaction toward him would be. I just find that such a powerful sentence. We didn't become a statistic because my husband chose to love me 
no matter what my reaction toward Him would be. This was not a deal. This was not a negotiation. It was, I'm going to love you even if you spit in my face. I'm going to love you. She says, it's really humbling to look back and see how loving and patient He was with me. And she says, trust me, it wasn't easy. And how He, only through the strength of Christ, you got that? Only through the strength of Christ, saved our marriage. I can't say we're completely out of the tunnel yet, but we are certainly very close. Brothers, the Gospel is at stake. The Gospel of Jesus Christ that this area so desperately needs is at stake. And our marriages and the way we treat our wives, even our sexuality, is tied up in our proclamation of the Gospel. And so don't put your religion over here and your marriage over here. It's all connected. May we love our wives the way Christ loved the church so that when we proclaim the Gospel of Jesus to the world, they will have already seen the character of love that we're talking about in the way we treat our wives. Let's pray.